This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tracy Lynn, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, what a remarkable book. It's called All That's Left Unsaid. Tracy is an author who was born and raised in southwestern Sydney. She completed a Master's of Fine Arts at the University of Kansas and worked as a reporter for the Los Angeles Time. Her debut novel, which is the one we're talking about today, is a gripping family drama set in Cabramatta. It explores a murder in a restaurant and the effects of inherited trauma and social discrimination. It really is an amazing book. Congratulations again. Thank you so much. All right. So where are you living now? Right now I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Right. And I've been uh, there for about two years, but approaching 10 years in America. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So why did you decide to write a fiction book about home? Hmm, so I think we have to go back to why I left journalism. <laughs> so what had drawn me to journalism initially, I knew I wanted to be a journalist when I was 13. And it was because I loved reading stories where I learned something that couldn't be unlearned. You know, when I learned something or read about someone that that changed the way I saw the world or the way I saw myself. And so that's why I went into journalism and I made it all the way to the LA Times and I loved that job so much. And then around the time when Donald Trump became president, my Mm -hmm. job changed quite a bit. And it became a bit relentless where every day there was a new crisis, which meant that every day it was almost like treading water. And the things I was writing about didn't feel important to me anymore. I knew the journalism profession was more important than ever, but I wasn't doing something that felt important to me. And so I thought, I think it's time for me to move on Um, because the thing I really want to do, which is tell stories that hopefully have a lasting impact that's not something I'm able to do in my job at this point in time. And so I decided to go back to school, get my master's degree in creative writing and try to learn how to write fiction because I was really interested in it, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And while I was in that program, I found that I kept writing these short stories where the main characters were these young Asian Australian girls in Cabramatta in the 90s. And I didn't even notice I was doing it. It was a classmate who brought it up and was like, oh, is this all in the same universe? And I was like, oh, (laughs) I, I hadn't thought about it. But now that you mention it, I keep circling these ideas, uh, this theme, this place, these characters, like, what is it about it? And I realized that I wanted to get at how it feels. I wanted my readers to know how it feels. And now what does that mean? Like, what am I talking about when I say how it feels? I think having spent nearly 10 years away from Australia, 
having had time to reflect, having had the distance to think about it, I really wanted to challenge the myth of the model minority. Um, so, you know, growing up in Australia, you're told from a very young age, you're as Aussie as they come. You belong, you'll get a fair go, you're true blue, dinky dye, all the rest. And what I realized at some point was this wasn't quite true. This didn't really apply to me or to people who looked like me. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't real- apply to me either. Right. You know, and- yeah, my parents are Lebanese. I mean, you know, they came out in the 50s. It never applied to us. I have never felt Australian. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You realize at some point that your citizenship is conditional. It's conditional on your impeccable behavior. It's conditional on your gratitude. And if you ever do anything to step out of line, you risk being perceived as a nuisance or worse as a threat. You know, we see this with Lebanese Australians, Arab Australians, African Australians, Indigenous Australians, Asian Australians. Um, or, you know, most recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, if you were to look to America, Asian Americans were once considered the success stories of America. And overnight, they were seen as threats to public health. They mm. were carriers of the so-called Kung flu. They were victims of like brutal street assaults. Mm. And it, it just flipped on them. Mm. You know, and I think to be on the receiving end of that sort of fear and hate, it's frustrating, it's confusing, it's painful. But one of the things that has been left unsaid for a long time is that it's also dangerous. You know, these are all acts of dehumanization that ultimately have consequences. Mm. And so... Well, we've seen that with Black people in America in a big way. Right. We've seen it with Cronulla in Australia. Yeah, we have. We have. Go back and talk to me about growing up, growing up in Cabramatta. Talk to me about your parents and how they came to the country. So my parents came to Australia as refugees a few years following the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Um, They settled in the Cabramatta area. I have an older brother and we both grew up in that area. We went to school in Cannyvale and then Smithfield and Fairfield. And I kind of took for granted the diversity of the area. Like I had just assumed that everywhere in Australia was like Cabramatta. So much so that when I went to university, I attended UTS and I studied journalism. And so the communications degree was predominantly uh, white kids. Mm. And I showed up on the first day of uni and I was sort of paralyzed because I realized I hadn't had a white friend before. Mm. (laughs) And so I was like, how do I navigate this? Like, you know, what do we have in common? And when I encountered, um, you know, there was another Asian student in my journalism class and I was like, oh, maybe like he's he's the one who I'll like be able to get along with or something. And I approached him and he had like the thickest Aussie accent, like just the most, you know, Oka <laughs> um, accent. And, you know, I had assumed, oh, well, if you are an Asian person in Australia, surely your parents must be refugees as well. And he was like, no, like my parents are born here and my grandparents are born here. And I was like, I have no idea what Mm. to do now. Like it was just such a culture shock, which is like a funny thing to say, given that I was born here and I've spent my whole life here. But yeah, I think it was, it was definitely um, like being in a bit of a bubble growing up in Southwest Sydney and taking Mm. for granted just how multicultural it really was and how colorful it is and how vibrant it is yeah and this is something I write about a bit in my book which is 
you know, if you were an outsider or mm. if you were only learning about Cabramatta through the news, you would think that it was some kind of war zone. You would think that it was the roughest place in the world, a depressed community overrun by drugs. And to some extent, that was true. But for a lot of people, it was just home. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still where you went for the best fur, for the best meals, for the freshest groceries. It was still where you met up with your friends. It was still where people threw weddings and your birthday parties. And mm-hmm. so it was all those things. And it was going through a heroin epidemic. Were you aware of that growing up? I was. You know, my parents worked in Cabramatta at the time. We spent a lot of time in Cabramatta, like on weekends. And I would see like drug addicts Mm. everywhere. And, you know, my parents would point out to me like, oh, those drug addicts aren't dangerous because they're clearly in the middle of a high. (laughs) Like they're not even standing straight. Like they're not a threat. You can outrun them. Mm. (laughs) It's the agitated ones you had to be worried about. But again, at the time, I mean, I was only in primary school. It didn't occur to me that things were different elsewhere. Mm. So Mm. it wasn't like I was pining for a different place or wishing to get out. It was just, oh, this uh, this is a part of life. This is the community. This is where I live. Yeah. Yeah. And some people are addicted to heroin and some Mm. people aren't. And that was it. Um, Did you then, thinking about leaving Australia, tell me what led you to travel and to be away from home for so long? And how do you see yourself now? I'd always wanted to try working overseas. And I had thought that maybe I would end up in London because that's where most Australians end up. But I was working for Vox Media at the time as their like Australian correspondent and they had an opening in San Francisco. So I was like, well, this is an easy way to just get a transfer and maybe I'll be there for two years, get my fix and then come back. And yeah, after two years... So you went to San Francisco for two years. And I was there for maybe 18 months before I got a job at the LA Times. And when my two years came up, I was like, well, I just got this job at the LA Times. Like I'm not ready to go back to Australia. So then I extended that visa. Two years came by, extended the visa again, became a permanent resident, met my now husband. So it sort of snowballed. But I always came back. I was back every year during the pandemic. It was obviously a lot harder to travel, but I think having the distance helped me write the book because Mm. it's really hard to read the label from inside the jar. And I'm not sure I could have reflected on my experience in Australia if I was still living in Australia. Mm. So I, I think having the distance has definitely given me a chance to to think about home in a way that's been really valuable to me. What kind of stories were you writing for the LA Times? I was a business reporter and I was focusing on Silicon Valley technology companies. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I was writing about are concerned startups, you know, Uber, Mm -hmm. Facebook. And whenever I had the chance, I would try to delve deeper into human interest stories So writing about people who were affected by everything around them, 
And those were always the stories that appealed to me most, even before I started working at the LA Times. All right. So then you decided to write fiction. What point did you come up with the idea? Did you have, did you always know that you might be writing about home? I didn't. In fact, I remember before I went to grad school, um, Mm. I was dabbling in fiction and my characters were mostly white. They were American and the issues that they were going through were almost comical. Like I was writing about, you know, a guy who entered a burrito rolling competition. Like it was so goofy and silly. And it wasn't until I started reading the work of Viet Thanh Nguyen that I sort of had a light bulb moment that I could look inwards because here's the thing, like, <laughs> you know, I, I was reading the census data for Australia not too long ago. And was surprised to learn that about 25% of respondents said that they are of Asian ancestry, Asian descent. And if you're looking at Sydney, that number is closer to 30%. But now if you were to look at our media landscape, that is not reflected. You would not know that that many people identify as being of Asian descent. And when I was younger, I had assumed that there was nothing nefarious. It was that our stories just weren't interesting. Mm. No one wanted to hear about it. That's why we're not in the media. That's why our stories aren't being told because no one cares. And as soon as I read The Sympathizer, again, that light bulb moment that made me realize, no, Tracy, you're wrong. People could care. Mm. Um, You just need to give it a shot. Mm. Right, like maybe if you just keep telling stories, eventually people will listen. Mm. And so that really inspired me to to start reflecting on my own experiences. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. But you are drawing on what you know, right? Yeah. You've got the place right. Yeah, so it... You know, when, when I realized that, okay, perhaps my story is interesting, perhaps my background is interesting, um, perhaps this is worthy of being told, you know, that's when I had the confidence to really start thinking about Cabramatta and especially my experience of Cabramatta. Mm. Do you think in a way that we stereotype those communities to an extent where they don't get any they don't get any credit for the value that they offer the greater community do you think that that's happened or that happens in areas yeah, like Cabramatta 
I think this is applicable to Australia and to the US, but when we when we talk about ethnic enclaves, we typically talk about them in a negative way, mm. right? Like, oh, that mm. they they failed to assimilate. Mm. The crime rate is so high or they don't speak mm. English or again, like coming back to the pandemic, like which communities were in a, a, a greater lockdown compared to others? Which communities were more policed? And all of that is incredibly negative and we sometimes fail to look at, as you say, the value that they bring. You know, there's sort of like the somewhat superficial things like food and festivals. Um, but I don't even think su- food is that superficial. I think s- food culturally is very, um, it's grounding. It brings people together. It moves people out of their comfort zone. Like, you know, people do go to Cabramatta to have pho and that's a great experience on so many levels. Yeah, and it's a great starting point. It is, of, of course. Um, but I also think of our ethnic enclaves as being uniquely Australian. Yes. Like having been to so many different Chinatowns and little Viet, like little Saigons around America, there's nothing like Cabramatta. No. Similarly, you know, if you look at any other ethnic enclave, like if you go to Lakemba or you go to mm. Auburn, um, Maryville, Chatswood, it's like these places exist within the context of Australia. Australia allowed these places to exist in their current form. That is Australia as well. You know, we have mm. this one idea that Australia is, you know, Bondi Beach, blonde surfers, um, and that is one facet of Australia. But Australia contains multitudes. So I think there's just so much value in enclaves in that they enrich the definition of Australia. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Is it, and I, I don't know the answer to this, that's why I'm asking you, when you live away from home for so long, do you see then see where you come from with a different perspective, whether that's with rose-coloured glasses or nostalgia or, I mean, how is your relationship with where you come from now after having not lived here for so long? I think the answer is a little bit of, all of the above. Um, But I think I've arrived at a place where I can honestly say I really love Australia Mm. and I'm critical because I care. Mm. You know, I think if you love a place, if you love a person, you don't do so blindly. Mm. You don't do it with a delusion. You know, you have to be able to look at it flaws and all and be able to um, accept what you see. And in some cases, even push for improvement. You know, I I think of some of my best friendships uh, with people who aren't afraid to call me out when I'm being insensitive or when I'm, or when I'm behaving in a way where they think I could, I could be better. You know, like Mm. they will call me out and vice versa. You know, we, we do that with our children, right? We do that, like, if you see your kid doing something really dumb, if you love them, you call them out and you let them know, hey, please stop doing that. You could be better. You could be so much better. And so when I look at Australia now, I I see the incredible things that Australians have accomplished, but I also see the incredibly, like, ugly past that 
you know, you have to take it all. If you want to be proud of everything Australia has accomplished and take credit for it, then you also have to take credit for the, for the darker things that have been done. You know, it's a full package. Hmm. I mean, how does it differ then to the United States? Do you find yourself comparing places? Sometimes in terms of um, the types of conversations that are being had, I think Americans are perhaps a bit further along in um, talking about race and in talking about the nation's history. Whereas some I Americans, I don't think Trump. Americans. I don't think Trump Americans are that far ahead. I think that they're oh. looking. They're looking back, don't you think? But I think that in America, when you have people spreading lies, you have about as many, if not more, people loudly pushing back. And so that's why I think America can seem a little, like the, the, the conversations can seem a little chaotic or argumentative, but that's because so many people are willing to step up and argue and push back. And I think Australians are starting to have those conversations, but a lot of people seem quite uncomfortable still to mm. acknowledge the country's dark past or even current behaviours that are quite unacceptable. People don't really want to confront it. Do you know what astounds me sometimes with these um, communities, I mean, I, I myself included or my family included, that they usually vote aspirational. Mm. And so that to me is often just so startling that you are voting for the very people that don't want you to exist in the life that you have. But the reason why they're voting is not to retain the life that they have. It's an aspirational vote that I want to be like the others. Would you agree with that? I think there is a bit of that happening, people voting against their own interests. Yeah. Sometimes I believe, um, again, depending on... You know, Western Sydney had voted conservatively for a very long time and and that completely astounds me every time. Yeah, I think in America, like with the most recent federal election, they it was surprising that so many um, immigrants had voted conservatively and... You know, I think part of it was like a fear of socialism and communism. Part of it was their own religious conservatism coming in. A lot of people are single issue voters where they fail to see all the other issues um, and just sort of vote very narrowly. It is very challenging to see. Mm. Um, I don't really know what can be done about that, but yeah, it can be really frustrating. Hmm. What have been some of the obvious differences or, or what have been things that you've noticed coming back home on this trip that might be progressive, might be regressive, might, you know, have you, is there, did you get a feeling this time around that it perhaps post-COVID, post-Liberal government, post, you know, I feel at the moment that we have a very inclusive government, but it's early days. Have you felt or noticed any difference? So when I read the transcript of uh, Anthony Albanese's speech at the Gama Festival, Mm. that was so heartwarming Mm. to me because I remember like, I think I was like in year three and my primary school teacher was trying to explain reconciliation 
to my class and like, this is why we need to say sorry, but the government won't do it. And so from a very young age, I was like, okay, we, we need to say sorry, government won't do it. And over time, it was like this relationship that the government seemed to have with the Indigenous community was just, it seemed so impossible. And I just kept thinking, like, it's not that hard, right? It, it shouldn't be this complicated. And yet it seemed impossible. And so to finally have a prime minister who's saying like a very common sense thing, what a relief. <laughs> and yeah, it's a, it's a starting point. So I, I think the tide is slowly turning. I'm hopeful. I think things are, are changing for the better here. I mm. really do. Mm. And what about in your own community of Cabramatta? Um, it's hard to say. Like, I think it's always a bustling, vibrant, loud place. Food is still amazing. Like, I think the parking's got, gotten more expensive. Um, you know what I love about it, how authentic it still is? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's always held its own in a way. Oh, yeah, and anytime you saw a restaurant establish itself and it was a little too nice, you'd be like, I give it six months. And then <laughs> later, like, like clockwork, it's gone. And so I'm glad that it's still a very, it's, it's accessible, I mm. think, price-wise. Mm. Um, mm. And the people who shop there and eat there are the people who live there. Mm. Well, so um, I, I still love it. I spend a lot of time there anytime I'm back. It's, it's probably like one of my favourite places in the whole country. Mm. And do you think you will come back at any point permanently? Never say never. For the time being, my home is in New York, but we'll see. Mm. All right, and we're out of time, Tracy. Wonderful book. It really is. Um, and again, you know, when we're talking about authentic and unique, it's exactly what it is. All that's left unsaid. Congratulations and thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.